Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Since I started Wonder Media Network, I've really come to realize how much I didn't learn in school about the role of women in American history. Luckily, there are lots of books out there that can help fill the gaps. I listen on Audible. Whether you want to stay up to date with the latest political must-reads, or you want to escape politics altogether, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. I'm currently switching off between The Woman's Hour and Crazy Rich Asians. Sometimes you need a little of both. You can get a free audiobook of your choosing if you go to audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. We did something big on this election day, and it's really just the beginning. I hope that everything that was accomplished today will be accomplished double that by the next election. I hope that every woman who ran and failed will run again and win. Because I promise you, if you thought the voter turnout was amazing in 2018, just wait for 2020. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. As our first season comes to a close, I must say it's been quite a journey. We've brought you the stories of 13 candidates from all over the country. We've talked about why women tend to run less and how their motivation for stepping up generally contrasts with their male counterparts. We've covered money, race, and religion in politics. We talked about the differences between the two biggest political parties, and we examined how candidates upended historical stereotypes. We talked about winning and losing and what it takes to step up and run again. Today, we're taking that last line of discussion further. Now that we're a few weeks past the election, we're talking about what comes next. That means different things for women who won, for women who lost, and for the many volunteers and activists who are fired up and looking for where to focus their energy next. Let's start with the winners. Elections are exciting and dramatic. And now that candidates have turned into representatives, the real work begins. New members of Congress have to prepare to enter life in the House. Here's Emily Tish sussman on what that means. Emily's a senior advisor for Swing Left, a progressive advocacy organization. Before Swing Left, Emily worked for about a decade on different federal advocacy campaigns. What immediately, like what happens this minute, is that there's a lot of new amazing members of Congress who are women, LGBTQ, Native, diverse. Like, there's a lot of firsts coming into Congress, and I think it's incumbent upon people like me and, like, the Beltway class to be making sure that they have a good pool of applicants to be staffed up in a way that reflects the diversity of their districts and those who are coming in to Congress. The way these offices end up getting staffed up is they first often get staffed up from people that work on their campaigns, which at first glance, makes sense. But there's a real disadvantage for particularly women 
who can't go out and just pick up their lives every two years and work on campaigns or anybody that has a family. You, know, you just can't like pick up your life and move to a campaign. So you end up kind of getting cut out of the leadership positions once you start to get into child rearing, basically. So I think it's important for people who are supporting the candidates to make sure that they are affirming that people may not have the most traditional pathway background to being in a senior leadership position in a Hill office, but that they should be considered. And it is these attributes that actually make them stronger. So there's some very basic administrative work that has to happen between the election and when they start. They have to hire a chief of staff. They have to figure out how to move themselves to Washington, at least part time. They have to find Washington-based staff that knows Washington. And also, if they vacated a position like a state Senate or a city position, they also want to help try to get people in position to start running special elections. So what is literally going on right now is they're getting a lot of outreach from people that kind of are like beltway bandits. So whether they're from lobbyist positions, whether they're from like leadership position inside the party, but like reaching out to try to help them set up their offices, which is good because they have experience. But also a lot of these members and the campaign managers that are coming with them are kind of weary of what their motivations are. And honestly, they should be a little bit weary of some of them. So, you know, trying to manage that, they'll start new member orientation, which is good. They'll get to know some of their peers. There is about to play out a leadership battle in the House. A lot of these new members ran on the fact that they wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker. She will still probably become the speaker, but that's about to become like a very live conversation. In addition to staffing up and going to orientation, New representatives have to begin the work of evolving their campaign goals and promises into actionable steps within our governing systems. I had a chance to hear more on what comes next for the winners at a conference put on by Vote Run Lead the Monday after Election Day. My name is Erin Velarde. I'm the founder of Vote Run Lead, and welcome to Women in Power 2018. (laughs) Vote Run Lead trains women to run for office and win. And we saw some remarkable wins this year. We're going to have a fantastic series of conversations today. We're calling them Radical Conversations with Barrier-Breaking Women. And you're in for a real treat. The lineup today is amazing. Vote Run Lead is a nonpartisan organization that trains women to run for all levels of office. Special thanks to them for allowing us to record. We were at a live conference, so please excuse some of the audio quality. At the event, we heard from candidates who won and lost races for a variety of positions across the U.S. First up, here's a woman we had the privilege of profiling in Episode 4, Lauren Underwood. Lauren actually participated in a Vote Run Lead training soon after she decided to run. Good morning or afternoon, everyone. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Thank you to Erin and for the whole Vote Run Lead team for the invitation to join you. My name is Lauren Underwood. I'm a 32-year-old nurse from Naperville, Illinois, and I'm the Congresswoman-elect. Now I will be the youngest Black woman to ever serve in the Congress. And so it's the honor of my life to be able to have this opportunity. But we won for two reasons. One, we expanded the electorate. And that is something that often gets talked about in the circumstance of registering new voters, which is important. But in my district, in my state, we have automatic voter registration. So that's not, um, that was not our barrier. Yes, we need automatic voter registration across the country. We have that in Illinois. But what we did is we identified women, 35 to 70 years old, who will tell us that they vote in every election, but what they meant was every presidential. And we went and found those women, 
and communicated and communicated and communicated until they went out and voted. And that's how we expanded the electorate. We engaged the class of 2018 and 2019, who the state of Illinois extended voting rights. So the 17 year olds could vote in our primary election and they'd be 18 by the general. And so now we have graduating classes filled with voters. Because voting is an active verb. It's not like citizen, where you just are. You have to actually vote to be a voter. And now we have folks who are voters and have now voted in their first two elections in 2018. And then we also outraised my opponent. So Vote Run Lead is an organization that encourages women to go into campaigns eyes wide open, recognizing that you will need to raise resources to be financially competitive. And we did that. We outraised my opponent, outspent my opponent, and uh, won the election resoundingly. And so together we've made history. And I'm so grateful for the support of the many women that I met through this program and I'm excited to serve with other barrier-breaking women in the Congress. You know their names. Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. These ladies, they're not there for the status quo. We are going to be shaking and rattling and rolling all across the Congress. We need many, 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 many more women to step up and lead. So ladies, if you're listening, if you're thinking, could it be me? Yes, we need you. We need you. We need you. And your community will be there to have your back. Lauren says that no matter what her official roles are in terms of committees, she's planning to use her new platform to make her voice and the voices of her constituents heard. So I don't know what committees I will be on or what perch I will take, but I know this. My commitment to healthcare is enduring. And I believe that the American people must have access to high quality, affordable healthcare. And um, it is not something that's disposable, it's not dispensable, it's not, it's a non-negotiable in my opinion. Now that being said, it's an honor to cast a vote in the Congress. And so even if they put me on the agriculture subcommittee on like pork production, I don't care, right? I will find a way to be impactful with my colleagues. I am a nurse. And I think that that kind of expertise is going to be essential as we think about stabilizing the Affordable Care Act, lowering premium prices, lowering drug prices, reforming mental health care in this country. Even if I'm not on one of those committees, which I hope to be, but even if I'm not, we're going to have an opportunity to work with our colleagues in the Congress to get it done. So health care is number one. We need uh, some infrastructure investment in my district, certainly around the country. We heard President Trump campaign on rebuilding America. And I think that he will certainly sign a bill. I'm someone that believes that, you know, we have to work in a bipartisan way across the aisle if we're going to have any hope of being productive and actually getting bills signed. And so really looking forward to the opportunity to get started on that important work. There's so much, so much work to do, but I'm gonna make the plea that I made earlier is that we need all of you to be engaged. The work does not stop because we have this amazing election on Tuesday night, elected a lot of new women to the Congress. We need you to be engaged advocates, be engaged citizens, to make sure that we have uh, the grassroots support and mandate to really uh, do this important work. Because if folks go back to their regular lives and assume things are cool, uh, it's very, very, very difficult to be productive. The Vote Run Lead Conference featured a panel with four more women who made history on Election Day. Ilhan Omar from Minnesota and Rashida Tlaib from Michigan are the first Muslim women elected to Congress. Ayanna Presley will be the first Black woman to represent Massachusetts in Congress, 
and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York will become the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. But these women didn't decide to run in order to become the first or to break historic barriers. They ran to address policy issues they saw in their communities. Here's Ilhan Omar. I think just the change is uh, a big challenge um, of, of coming here. But I know that all of us have um, through a lot and have a real opportunity to show Washington that it's for change and we're going to be here fighting for our constituents and for the America we believe in. Here's Ayanna Presley. I think the challenge um, is that we don't want often the mischaracterization of us to get in the way of the work because people, um, there has been a lot of press and sort of whirlwind about our being the first, which we all celebrate and don't want to give short shrift to that. Representation does matter. But as my sister over here said earlier today, none of us ran to be the first anything. We have made history, but we are much more interested in bringing about change and in making real headway. And I think uh, two of the connective threads that I would lift up that all of us share is our activism, our commitment to movement and coalition building, and we all care about disparity, you know, specifically um, income inequality. Here's Rashida Tlaib. This has been an incredibly dark time in our country, and we know that we brought some light uh, or more of a rainbow of a beautiful array of colors and backgrounds, and it's incredible. I don't want to, we do want to celebrate that, but so much of it is because we didn't want to be on the outside ring anymore. We want to get on the inside. And uh, for me, it's fighting poverty. It's fighting against the environmental polluters in, in my community I grew up in. I mean, it's those human stories. I really did think that smell in my neighborhood was normal. I thought that being not able to breathe clean air was normal. And so a lot of those personal experiences come with us. Uh, and yes, we changed the American, you know, course of American history and we celebrate that. But we also hope to be able to really, truly change, do systemic change for the residents back home that really look to us, not because we were first, but because of the values that we all share um, around making sure they feel they have a voice at the table, feel really heard and feel like they have a fighter uh, right here in Washington, D.C. on their behalf. So it's really important that we embrace that as much as we obviously want to celebrate the first year. Here's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. When I won my primary in the direct aftermath, all of the attention and everything just felt so overwhelming. And my primary was in June, and Rashida and Ayana and Ilhan's primaries came later. And I know that once they started kind of breaking through, I just started feeling relief because we're not alone. We have elected really a force and a statement. And I know that each of their communities, you know, they didn't elect Ayana so that she could be the first black congresswoman from the state of Massachusetts. They didn't elect Rashida and Ilhan just so they could be the first Muslim women in Congress. Uh, they didn't elect me just so we could have the youngest woman in Congress. They elected us because we were standing up for single-payer health care, for a living wage, for environmental justice, and we were champions for that unapologetically. And what our elections really show is the power of that message and the power of that commitment. And that when we make those commitments, we can elect anybody, no matter the history of this country. That's right. I mean, that's what I think we're ushering in. That's Ayanna Presley. Is this paradigm shift 
a moment ago we were introducing ourselves to our colleagues in the Progressive Caucus, and I just expressed openly something that I had expressed in private to my new sister uh, congresswoman, which is that I wanted us to shift the business of governing and that this be about more than transaction, but about true transformation. I am so proud that in our campaign, the student vote alone in Boston University Student Village grew by 400%. The Latino vote from 2014, 2018, we grew it by 71%. 54% of our primary voters, it was the first time they ever voted in a primary. But what I'm lifting up is not all the votes we got. I'm lifting up all the new voices we engage. This is about the strengthening of our democracy and a fight for the soul of this party and our nation. And so I hope we're ushering in a new paradigm about how we run and win elections, but also uh, cooperative governing. And as a party specifically, not making assumptions about who desires or deserves to have a seat at the table of democracy. The campaigns of the women on the panel were about including people who may have felt ignored by politicians who were part of the status quo. Ilhan spoke to the fact that these women's campaigns were run on ideals that will continue and evolve now that they've won. In Minnesota, we have one of the highest uh, voter turnout. We uh, vote, I think, about 76 percent. We're the second highest voting state. And in my district, like Ayana's, we have a really young cohort of voters and new immigrants and people who are really excited about participating in our democracy. And my predecessor, Congressman Keith Ellison, always used to say every vote counts, every vote matters. And so we do a lot of work in trying to make sure that people are being invited through the ways that they want to be invited through our democracy. For us, there is going to be an opportunity to make sure that there is integrity, really, in our voting system, that we have campaigns like ours where people are pledging to have it be centered and fueled by individuals, by people, by constituents, and not corporations, so that the people that we represent understand that it is them that get to have a permanent seat at our offices, and it's not going to be the lobbyists, it's not going to be the corporations and the special interests. People need to know that we are elected by them, they have given us the privilege and the honor of being in positions of influence. So we have to also return that honor by making sure that they're the only ones that are influencing our decisions. And I think that is really truly what the American people who have had massive historic turnout this midterm have bought into. And we have to make sure that when we get into Washington, we change the culture. The culture here really isn't designed for people like us. It isn't designed for the constituents that we serve. It isn't designed to to have people be in the center of it. And so we have to make sure that we are not following the system, but reshaping it in our own image, in the image of our constituents, in the image of the democracy we believe in. Here's Ayanna Presley. I believe that our elections were a mandate for hope. And so the ultimate voter suppression is when people have broken hearts and broken promises because of a broken system. We delivered, or those that elected us, a mandate for hope. 
So I want to say this. I'm unwilling to compromise on my values. And I'm unwilling to compromise on my aspiration. I will put hope, vision, and aspiration for my constituents or this country on a shelf. People's lives and livelihoods are depending on that. So on that, I'm not going to moderate on vision because I have a mandate from the electorate to do the opposite of that. Now, we could think more tactically about how to actualize those values. But as I've said over and over again, I believe as a party, we need to talk about these elections, do a postmortem and a deep dive about what we learned and put that into practice. This is not the time to shrink and to play small. This is the time to be big mm-hmm. and to be bold. Mm-hmm. We are at a crossroads. It is the most defining time for our country. And so I think we can collectively usher in the most inclusive and progressive change-making movement if we choose to be bold, which again is what our electorate has emboldened us to do. As we discussed in our last episode, many candidates won, but many also lost. For the women who lost, what comes next is a different calculation. How can they continue to do the work that they value in a different way? How do they decide whether or not to run again? Here's Julie Dolan. Julie's a professor of political science at McAllister College. I thought that the elections were typical in that the out party gained seats in the House. It didn't in the Senate, but there wasn't really that much of an expectation in the Senate. And, you know, I was wearing a real pink sweater the day after, but it probably really should have been a purple sweater because it was really a wave of Democratic women, not just women that were winning across the country, much more so of the Democratic women. I was also really struck when I was watching the returns at just how many Democratic women were picking off Republican incumbents. And so when I watched on CNN and they had the running tally of the flip districts and how many the Democrats needed to flip, and it just seemed like, you know, three out of four of them were women taking over these seats. And I think the last time I checked the numbers, it was about two thirds of those Democratic pickup seats were by female candidates. So that was historic in and of itself. One of the questions that we've asked of the women that we've interviewed thus far that lost the primary was if they were going to run again. And I would say that a handful of them, probably no more than 10 to 15 percent, said they would definitely run again. Many of the other women were much more likely to say, well, if the circumstances were really right, I would totally do it again. But, you know, fundraising is difficult and I got started too late or whatever. You know, they had all sorts of reasons. And so I'm really curious about these women that got to the general election and lost, if they're going to pack up their tents and go home or if they're going to say, hey, you know what? I just ran a competitive campaign. Two years is not that long away. I can start campaigning again. I know one of the things that other women have told me, again, women that lost their primaries, is that some of these women who are 65 years old, 68 years old, I think, in one case, is that although they might not run again, they were certainly going to do their part to get other women to run, to start encouraging and recruiting other women. One of the women that I interviewed has started to organize like a group of the women that were running in 2018 and try to get them to come together in order to support progressive candidates moving forward. So I'm really looking forward to seeing 
if that happens. I don't get the sense that this was a one-time deal, you know, like a blip that women are not going to, we're going to return to old levels. Maybe I'm just being optimistic, but it feels like there is still an energy, enthusiasm, and anger that will propel many of these women's candidacies forward. One such woman who lost is Liuba Gretchen Shirley. I had the pleasure of meeting Liuba at the Vote Run Lead Conference, where she spoke on an extremely moving panel with other moms who'd run. Seriously, my co-founder Shira was sitting next to me sobbing. By the end of the day-long event, Liuba said that she'll run again. Here she is. Hi, everybody. What motivated me to run? I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and I am seriously concerned about the direction that our country is going in. I wanted to make sure that they grew up in a different country than the country that they were born into. Right now, we're one of two countries in the world that doesn't have paid family leave. Papua New Guinea is the other. And one in four women will go back to work 10 days after giving birth. And that's a public health crisis. And I love seeing all of these babies here. This is incredible because this is exactly what I was doing. I was organizing with a baby strapped to my chest. I have a representative who's been in office since I was 12. And he has consistently voted to hurt working people in our district and across the country. He voted against equal pay for women for equal work, against paid family leave. He voted to take health care away from 74,000 people in our district. He supported leaving the Paris Accord, and we all just read that recent U.S. study. My kids are going to be 22 and 24 when we start to see serious, serious effects from climate change, and that's not okay with me. And I, you know, I was told when I was organizing, I was told I was too emotional, I was told I was too principled, and that's exactly what's wrong with government right now, is that we don't have more emotional, principled people who are concerned about what is happening. Almost a third of American children live in poverty. We have almost half of Americans who are in bankruptcy are there because of medical bills. And most of those people had health insurance. We have the worst maternal mortality rate in the developed world, and my representative and his Republican colleagues voted to take maternity coverage away from 13 million American women last year. And I had had enough. I had had enough of everybody saying, nobody can run against Peter King. He's been there for 25 years. Everyone said I was crazy. And we changed the map in our district. He won the last election by 24 points. He only won this one by six. That's a big difference. Many women, including Liuba, ran and nearly won. Others weren't so close. There was a significant difference between the success of women in the two major political parties. The exciting, record-breaking numbers that people are talking about are really only on the Democrat side of the aisle. For more on why that is, check out episode three. Jennifer Sarver is a Republican woman who ran to represent the 21st District of Texas. She spoke on a panel with other Republican women at the Vote Run Lead event. You know, Texas was in the news a little bit this cycle, (laughs) part of our Senate race. Um, And it was interesting to watch the race from the sidelines after being in the primary. I ran in the Republican primary for Texas 21st District. I was one of 18 candidates. So I think I take the cake when it comes to a big, crowded primary. I ran in an open seat. My member of Congress retired after 31 years, Lamar Smith. He retired about three weeks prior to the filing deadline, so I didn't have a lot of time to get ready. But I had spent the last 20 years telling people, I want to run for office someday. And so my encouragement to those of you who haven't run, who are thinking about it, is to tell people, you need support, you need encouragement. So when he retired, people started calling me saying, you're going to run. And I've been struggling with my identity in the Republican Party. After the first 100 days of President Trump's administration, I wrote a piece where I said, I feel like it's Christmas, 
My parents are divorced, and I don't know whose home to go to. The Republican Party that I grew up in, the ideals of limited government, local control, restrained spending that I believe the party stands for, that's what my home was, but it doesn't look familiar right now, and it doesn't feel welcoming. But I'm also not a Democrat. I, I have fundamental differences. And so where do I fit in? And I had a lot of people say, well, you should just run as a Democrat people on the left, and then also people on the far right who don't think I'm sufficiently conservative enough because I'm willing to talk about bipartisanship and collaboration and consensus. And those are words I used a lot on the campaign trail and got criticized for them in the primary. And that's a problem with the party. And I think that we need to have voices like ours continuing to fight back and push back. So every time somebody says, you should just become a Democrat, I'm like, no, we need to fight and make our party better and actually fight for a bigger tent where we can have a diversity of viewpoints and have people willing to say the word bipartisanship. I mean, to get criticized for saying that was just wild to me. Because like you say, we can't get things done unless we're working with both sides. So my critique is my party has to do more to recruit and support women. But here's my, my other challenge to you all. The women's movement needs to be welcoming to conservative voices. And I have very often walked in a room where I didn't feel welcome. So thank you for having me here today. We can't make assumptions about each other. I hope what you're hearing from these so true women is, 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 is changing some of your assumptions. Because um, I know that sometimes I introduce myself, I say that I'm a lifelong Republican, and they make immediate assumptions about me. I work very hard not to make assumptions about people based on their policy background, their skin color, their education background. I grew up in a poor family. My dad is a convicted felon. I went to school on a Pell Grant. I worked very hard throughout my life to be able to take care of myself, build a business, and be successful. And I want to live in a country that anybody can achieve what they want if they work hard enough. I recognize that I come into the room with some privileges, but I also have a lot in my background that has predestined me for a different path, and I've worked hard to overcome that. And I believe in a conservative philosophy that allows people to be who they are without the reins of government tearing down on them too hard. I also think what I've seen in Texas is when we don't have competition in our parties is one party takes over and we start eating our own. And we really need to make sure that we have competitive parties on both sides of the aisle. One of the best things that came out of Beto's run in Texas was a more competitive Democratic Party in Texas, which makes the Republican leaders step up and lead better and listen to their constituents. And so I would want that for both parties, to have competition on both sides. We can have competition of ideas and not tear people down. And so those are the reasons that I'm staying in the party, because I want to make it better, I want to make it more competitive, and I want to have diverse viewpoints within my own party, but to be able to sit across from the, the table from somebody and say, listen, we're not going to agree on some key issues, but let's fight for the center, not fight for the fringes. Raquel Regalado was also a Republican candidate this past election. She ran to represent Florida's 27th district. You know, I've raised over $6 million dollars, I never considered myself someone that had a problem raising money, right? I raised money for my father, I raised money for myself. I have no issues asking people for money. We can talk about that later if you want tips, happy to do it. But when you come to Washington, it's very different because there's this party structure and people are like, well, we have to wait. You have to wait your turn and we'll see. And, and we would love, the Republican Party would love to have more women, but we can't help you right now. So what is it? Are you going to help or are you not going to help? And I think to your point as to what happened on election night, that's what happens when you have a party that says, we want to help, but we can't help now. 
And, and that's what I think we have to change. And I'm so glad we're talking about the, the big tent and what we bring to the table. But, you know, as women, we have to demand that everyone support more women. I don't think it's a matter of a party. But I think Republican women are in a very difficult situation because we're just losing so much ground while everyone talks about the year of the woman. And, and we're watching more women step to the side and say, like you were saying, this party is not, I'm not feeling it, you know? I don't feel like I fit in here, and we get so much backlash, you know, for not leaving. And I refuse to leave, and I think that that's the right thing to do, and I think we just have to push the party to do better. I have the scars, the family history to prove how important democracy is, so I ask you to consider this. Why do we have to agree? I've never 100% agreed with anyone. So when the Republican Party tells me you have to 100% agree with the president, I respect the president. I respect, I worked with the Obama administration. I respect anyone in that office because they have been elected by the people. And I won't disrespect them or say anything nasty because I believe in our government. But I've never 100% agreed with anyone. So how can you tell me that we all have to agree? As long as we disagree respectfully and as long as we get to a consensus that honors our democracy, we're all good, but we can't have that without other voices. It doesn't work if it all skews in one direction. So please consider that as women, we need to respect each other's values and we need to respect our government. And that's why we need to have this diversity and not just diversity of color. I'm a Latino woman, check the box. Not just diversity of birth, you know, I'm a first generation immigrant, not just diversity of gender, I'm a woman. I'm not just diversity of cho life choices. I've been divorced for 10 years. It was an election issue. I don't understand. It appears if you don't remarry, you have a problem. Um, I am a single parent of teenagers. Check that box, you know. But that doesn't mean that I have to be a liberal, right? That doesn't mean that I have to be a Democrat. I have the right to my opinions just like you have the right to yours. And together we make a great nation. For women who won, the path ahead is clear. For women who lost, it's less so. And for the volunteers who stepped up to help on all these exciting campaigns, it's perhaps the least clear of all the best ways to stay involved. One choice is to step up and run. There are over 500,000 elected offices in the U.S., and over 90% of those offices are local. 43% of all those positions go unfilled or uncontested each election cycle, according to Nation Builder and Vote Run Lead. We've spoken many times on this show about the fact that a major reason why there are fewer women in office in the U.S. is because fewer women run. Here's Christina Pacheco, vice president of organizing at Nation Builder. She spoke at the Vote Run Lead event. Actually, what we know is that next year in 2019, over 26,000 local offices, so a lot of those being, again, the school board and county-level seats, are up for re-election. What we know about the current statistics of these seats is that 60% of school boards are currently held by men, school board seats, and about 80% of county seats are currently held by men. So that's some major statistics. And again, thinking 90% of over 500,000, that's a lot of offices. So most people do get their start in local offices, as we know and as we've talked about today. So we have to ensure that more women get the information they need to file and get into that local pipeline and people all across the board. If you're not quite ready to run, the next step might be finding a cause or candidate who you want to support. Here's Emily Sussman again. The way that you generally think about 
moving people in elections, you talk about moving them up the ladder of engagement. So you start with asking them to sign a petition, then you ask them to make calls, then you ask them to volunteer in person, then you ask them to donate or maybe earlier, depending on your membership. But a lot of people were ready to jump into the volunteering this year, and a lot of people did. I mean, we saw tens of thousands of people all over the country volunteering. So yes, they want to take a minute and, you know, they're a little winded, but that muscle is still very active for them. Like they want to flex it again. And so now part of the conversation is how do we keep them engaged and where do they volunteer? There's a little bit of like back and forth in in discussion is, do you do things that are higher visibility, like federal races, like house races, Senate races, governor's races, or do you go where they're actually most needed, which is really municipality, local elections. Many local elections are in 2019. And just a couple of volunteers can really swing a race. So it's not as like sexy and visible, right? Like it's not Beto, (laughs) but a couple of volunteers can just make a difference. It also means that the candidates are much more localized, right? Like their issues vary. They're going to talk about things like infrastructure in their cities and education, school board taxes. Like they're going to get really, really local. That does mean a little bit more of like a fragmented message. So it's not as sexy, but it's very impactful volunteering. Then there's a little discussion right now as to how that goes, like where we end up really like putting a lot of focus. Seems like the day after the election, many people immediately turn their attention to 2020. Still, 2019 is really important. Here's Emily again. We should definitely be looking at 2019 races, both municipality, city council, but state legislative, many of them are going to be in cycle as well. And preparing for those, I think, are going to be even more important than preparing for the presidential. The presidential will happen. The presidential will take up all the oxygen in the room. It'll be all the news coverage. It'll be endless speculation. But the thing that we should really be preparing for are the state and governor races. I mean, look, city as well, it matters a lot where you live when you start looking at those municipal races. But the thing that Democrats really screwed up was the 2010 census and redistricting. And it screwed Democrats for half a generation, if not a generation. And so making sure they were preparing for those races is incredibly important. One of the metrics that a lot of organizations used for this last cycle was uncontested Republican seats in state legislatures. I mean, that's unbelievable. And the metric of success was that the Democrats running for state legislative seats that were uncontested before went up like X percent. What that literally means is that there were Republicans all over the country who didn't even have to defend their seats in any way. And our metric of success is that we ran somebody, right? Like that was it. Like that wasn't even like a huge high bar. But so if we can increase that, the Republicans actually have to defend these seats and we can get good candidates who are local to the area and really understand it running and potentially even winning. We flipped a huge number of state legislatures We have to flip even more, honestly. I mean, the North Carolina map is still unconstitutional. So let's not do that again for the next generation. I mean, that's not to say that all Republicans are bad on drawing lines and gerrymandering and all Democrats are good. But we did see that when Republicans took control of more state houses in 2010, the lines were more likely to be gerrymandered as opposed to going towards something like an independent commission to draw the lines or draw them more fairly. The 2018 election was historic. The movement of women running for office will continue to make dramatic changes. These women have opened up the doors for future women to run and have become role models for young women who maybe thought they didn't belong in politics. 
I think that from the amount of women running and women running at different levels, the cycle, I think that it forced us to talk about things that we hadn't talked about before. One of my favorite images from election night is Abigail Spanberger in Virginia 7 having her daughter crawling between her legs. I think that going into this Congress, I think there's going to be a lot of discomfort for the members of Congress who have been there for a long time, because they're going to have to talk about realities for people. And they're not in the abstract, and they are realities. Senator Tammy Duckworth blew a lot of that wide open this year by being a sitting senator nursing who had a baby and had to go on to the floor to take votes. She was really a a groundbreaker there. And when people talk about, like, civility, going back to civility. Sure, like there are some crazy things that are happening in Congress right now, but it's also a lot easier to be, quote, civil when you don't actually have to deal with anybody who's different than you, when you don't have to give a seat at the table and a real consideration that anyone that's different than you. So I I will put the onus on those who have been in the legislative bodies for a while to say, okay, maybe there's some perspectives that I didn't actually have to consider, but I can do it, quote, civilly when I didn't have to deal with them face to face. But now I'm actually really going to have to work with someone and to understand their perspective. I think childcare is going to be a real issue that people will have to, to work around. Traditionally, a lot of members of Congress live in their offices, which is a little bit surprising to a lot of people. But, you know, they don't want to pay for like a full second residence in Washington when most of the time their families are still in their districts. That's not a reality for a lot of people, especially as they're moving around with children. You know, there are members of Congress who are formerly undocumented, who are Native, These are no longer just talking points, but they will have to be faced with it in the legislative body. Representative Jackie Speier, when she talked about her own sexual assault, I think changed the way that other members dealt with her because they, again, like not a talking point. I would have liked to have thought that when Representative Gabby Giffords was shot at a congressional event, that would have changed things in the body. I think it was the beginning of the conversation, but obviously they have a lot more work they have to do. This is just the beginning. Here's Julie Dolan again. Yeah, I think the other optimistic or the nice story from these elections is just how diverse the group of women that ran and won was this time around, that we have two new Muslim American women who are elected to the United States Congress, our first two Native American women that are elected. We have other previously, typically more marginalized groups of individuals that are now sitting in the United States Congress. So a more diverse place that I think is good, not only for substantive representation, for putting people in that have different experiences, different life perspectives based on their life experiences and are going to bring new issues to the table and advocate for new issues with more passion, but also that it signals to little girls throughout the country that girls like them can grow up to be in the United States Congress that you can get elected, you can sit at the table. It's not only white men that can do this job. So that I'm optimistic about as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. This is our last episode of our first season. We'll be back with season two, and we're bringing you the stories of women who have already been elected to the House of Representatives. Can't wait to share more. Also, keep an eye out for a host of brand new shows from Wonder Media Network. We'll preview them on this feed to make sure you're in the loop. I feel really grateful to all of our wonderful listeners. If you like the show, please continue to spread the word. If you don't, let me know. Here at WMN, we're all about fostering conversation with people who have different opinions. 
You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan, follow us on Instagram at WMN.media, or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you soon. <laughs>